We go for another dose of wisdom for navigating a fallen world. You see, you can use all of those tools. We can give you all these tools about marriage and family and application and specific things to do. But if you don't understand the world that we live in and why it operates the way that it does and what God says about it, you're going to be... You're going to be lost. You're going to put the wrong socket on the, the wrong wrench. And there's no better book to help us think rightly in a world that's all wrong than Ecclesiastes. I mean, good theology is kind of like a guide rope when you're in deep water. It's a way to get back to, to the boat. And that's what these messages are intended to be, a biblical guide rope. They won't take away the choppy seas, and those choppy seas didn't start uh, this month or last month. They've been going on for, for a long time. But they will help you swim securely. And so Solomon's wisdom has reminded us that there is a God, and He is sovereign. I mean really sovereign in Ecclesiastes 3, the first half. There's a world, and it's fallen. I mean crooked beyond straightening. That's the second half of chapter 3. And then there are wise tools, and we must use them, um, or we'll feel even more frustrated. That's what Ecclesiastes 5 is about. In fact, in uh, chapters 3 through 5 of Ecclesiastes, we're not covering all of it, it actually covers 10 areas of life that can leave us with a, with a large helping of, uh, of a Genesis 3 headache as we live under the sun. And if there was ever a topic that falls into that category, it's the one that Solomon addresses today, isn't it? I mean, I doubt you, you're going to have to imagine in your minds what, what this is like. You, you, you've lived it before, and you understand the frustration of Solomon's, Solomon's topics. Solomon is going to give us wisdom, though, for the frustration that bad politics and governmental corruption can, can bring. And I will tell you up front, I have good news for you and bad news. The bad news is that Solomon says, in a Genesis 3 world, you're never going to get rid of corrupt politicians or, or, or bad politics. You can drain the swamp and shoot all the alligators, but sin nature just produces more alligators, and those alligators love the swamp, and they'll, they'll go right back. The good news is, though, you, if you respond wisely, that can reduce some of the frustration caused by, by crooked candidates, whatever the, your political perspective, uh, perspective. Solomon grants his wisdom in the areas of God's sovereignty, human injustice, death, oppression, abuse, misuse of work, loneliness, popularity, a relationship to God, and, and today, corrupt government. Mankind, according to the Bible, is so bad. 1 Thessalonians 5-7 describes us when we were unbelievers, and you, if you're an unbeliever this morning, describes a person like, like that outside of Christ, like, a, like an intoxicated person groping around in the, in the dark, unable to see their faculties uh, um, inebriated. And while an unbeliever, someone outside of Christ, is still drunk from the, from the fall, believers have, have been sobered up and we've been given light. And so Solomon reminds us while we're, we're no longer intoxicated by our sin, there is a hangover that, that we have to deal with. And by applying God's wisdom, it, it can remove some of the headache. So Solomon's remedy for us today is take two verses of Ecclesiastes and call me next Sunday. 
because the headache will return. However, if you don't follow God's counsel, or worse, you, you turn back to the, to the world's brew, then, then you'll only increase your frustration and you'll live a very vexing life. You see, Ecclesiastes is a book that was written to help you understand You already feel the futility of life and the frustrations. Ecclesiastes doesn't have to tell us that. that. You already feel that. Ecclesiastes helps us understand why we feel that and what we're to do with it. I mean, we feel uh, that we work and we work and uh, we, we never get things done. Two steps forward, one step back. You feel that. We feel that death is wrong. It's a tragedy that's unfair. We, uh, you wonder why God allows things. You're frustrated by crooked politicians. You lament, why doesn't somebody do something? And and you ask, when will God fix it all, just like I do? Sadly, sometimes we even blame God or the church for the curse and, and what's around us. Well, Ecclesiastes helps us understand where it all comes from. When you bring an innate desire for for lasting fulfillment, you bring that into contact with a world that can't provide that. The result is futility and and frustration. And that's why you feel the way that that you do. You have eternity in your heart. You were created to live forever. You were to live for something more, and yet you live in a world with with less. It's it's temporal. It's finite. It ends. And there aren't long-term solutions in the world. And so you long for satisfaction that only God can bring. And in a world that tries to leave Him out of it, and when you feel that way, you, you can respond in two ways. You can go on a search and spend your whole life looking for something that, will, that you'll never find, and, and you'll try to mask your frustration and your emptiness with relationships and more of them, or education or career or, or money or cynicism or pleasure. And Solomon looks at all of those, looks in all of those areas. Or... You can look through the lens that God has provided in the Bible and you can see the world rightly and then apply God's wisdom and and find His joy in the things that He's provided. That's the goal of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was written to help you see the curse rightly, then to categorize all of the effects of the fall properly so you can gain wisdom and then reduce some of the effects. So the focus of chapter 5, we're only going to look at one area, but just to give you an example of how practical this book is, chapter 5 covers three arenas, religion, politics, and money. I mean, what a trifecta is that? How much frustration comes from those areas? Frustrations from religion in verses 1 through 7, from politics in verses 8 and 9, and then the mishandling of wealth through the rest of of the chapter. Let me prove to you that Solomon knows you really, really well. And he rightly diagnoses the world. When you read or when you heard Romans 13 read this morning, did you feel the resistance kind of bubbling up in your heart? I did. I told the 830 service I'm reading that. I mean, this is God's Word. These are, these are God's words. And I find something just rising up in me. And it's not because I don't like authority. It's because of the authority that we have in a lot of ways is corrupt. And so you, you feel that frustration. Here's God's Word specifically to us, and yet we live in a fallen world that, that, that corrupts that, and, and it does something in us. It produces frustration. And we all know the passage that we read in Romans 13, 
But Solomon brings us face to face with another reality. While God established governmental authorities, because of the fall, those ruling or participating in them can be crooked. And that's the norm. And he says, don't forget that. Even further, they can do the exact opposite of what God intended and commanded. And and so Solomon will tell us what to do when they don't operate the way that God intended them to. Government is God's gracious dispensation to help us live in a cursed world. But Solomon says because of that same curse, it can also deliver the opposite. And you don't have to look very far in the Bible to see that happening. I mean, Genesis 4, the very first act right outside of the garden when Cain killed Abel and God exiled him. Uh, He fears retaliation from others and so God places him under divine protection. Whoever kills Cain's uh, vengeance shall fall on him sevenfold in Genesis 4.15. That's the proper function, a a protection from going too far in, in punishment. And yet in Genesis 6, God has to destroy all living creatures of the earth because hearts, they use their even, even the authority that God gave them to disobey. And probably the most obvious is the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis 11, where mankind used government to directly disobey God's commands to fulfill the earth. Uh, Genesis, uh, Genesis 4.11, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven and Let us make a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. And God's command was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're actually using government to do the exact opposite. God created the government, they're using government to specifically disobey what God commanded. It's in the first 11 chapters of the the Bible. And it doesn't get better, does it? There was Abraham's treachery more than once, there was Isaac and Jacob and... His sons with Joseph. It was Moses who misused his power when he struck the rock. I mean, what about the entire book of Judges? Good government going on there? Samuel's sons, Saul, and Israel's request for a king for all the wrong reasons. And then even God's king David, his exploitation of Bathsheba and Uriah, and his census of Israel to boast about his own greatness that brought judgment on people. Most of the kings that followed Solomon, I could go on, the prophets of Jeremiah, the priests in Malachi, scribes and Pharisees in the New Testament, Republicans and Democrats. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon says, while God established rulers, the fall has affected even that system of authority. And what happens when even what God created for good turns bad? It's pretty frustrating, isn't it? What do we do then? Well, Solomon is going to give us some wisdom in how to deal with that today. And there are only two verses, but if you doubt that this is a big deal or creates great frustration, let me just remind you, out of the ten topics that Solomon chooses to illustrate how, how bad the fall is and how it's, it's, it's permeated all of life, three of the ten have to do with this topic. It's one of the most prevalent frustrations that you will face in a fallen world. He deals with injustice in the courts in chapter 3. He deals with oppressive authority in chapter 4. And he addresses political corruption here in in chapter 5. And and Solomon gives us three observations about bad politics. He notes the the site of political corruption at the beginning of verse 8. 
He tells us the source of it in the second half of verse 8, and then he gives the solution to political corruption in, in verse 9. He starts in his normal way by, by observing something. Now, if you don't get these down, you'll get them as we, as we go along. Look, if you would, at verse 8. Here's the site of political corruption. Verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor and the uh, denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Notice Solomon starts a little different than, than with his other observations. Normally he says, I observed. And, and you have to imagine what this is like through the eyes of Solomon. But he doesn't do this here. He says, if you observe, the, the, the topic of political corruption is so grievous and frustrating, Solomon doesn't take long, doesn't take the long way around the barn to, to call us to wisdom. He normally says, I observe and let you imagine. He doesn't take a lingering path here. He knows that you're going to live through multiple elections. <laughs> and so he knows that you've observed this. And Solomon says, you are going to observe these things, regardless of which party is in power. Things that relate to government and politics, no matter where you live or when you live. You're going to observe, in verse 8, a denial of justice. You're going to observe a mission of righteousness, and you're going to observe abuse of authority. Solomon knows that it's frustrating to see these things. Solomon understands that whenever you, you, you watch the congressional clown parade be the biggest perpetrators of injustice and then use their loudest mouths to, to call for fairness, he knows that's frustrating. Solomon knows it's exasper, uh, exasperating to watch the hypocrisy of a Senate ethics hearing. And you can trust them, by the way, because they're from the government, Right? I mean, whether you realize it or not, or whether he realized it or not, you know Ronald Reagan's source for his famous quote was actually Solomon. The, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. It's Reagan's famous quote. Solomon realizes that when politicians escape justice and are morally bankrupt and are above the law, it's, it's infuriating. And all of those... Things will bring oppression, but especially on the poor. Notice what it says here in verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor, he, he, I mean, this affects all of us, but, but the idea of verse 8 is the least among us will get the worst end of the stick with, with bad politics or bad politicians. You see that all the time, right? I mean, a person who can't afford uh, or who can't afford a, a good lawyer has a better chance of fighting uh, the, the, the system than someone who can't even afford a nice suit to go into court? I mean, the policies of the politicians support their donor base. And those who can't do anything about it are out of luck. Amazon gets 50 times richer while the small business owner get, gets stuck and is put out of business. I mean, you see that. And it's frustrating. And Solomon emphasizes the travesty this molestation of justice brings with the word that he uses here for denial. He says in verse 8, If you see the oppression of the poor, the least, and denial of, of justice. It's a specific Hebrew word for robbery. 
It means to tear something away violently. It, it means to, to rip something out of someone's hands. And Solomon says the less fortunate or the less powerful in society are not just denied justice, they're, it's ripped away from them. That's the idea here. And you see that happening. And they come to the very place that God says to come for justice, and instead of getting it, even the hope in their empty hands is snatched away by delay and by red tape and by dismissal, by corruption. And Solomon notes in this passage the two things that government is supposed to provide. It's supposed to retard evil, justice, and it's supposed to reward good, righteousness. And that's no mistake. I mean, last week we saw Romans 13. We read it this morning. The Apostle Paul instructs Christians to be in subjection to civil authorities, and he tells them that God established good government for two reasons. I mean, you can think of Romans 13 like the principle. This is why God has established the authorities or, or government. And then Ecclesiastes is the, is, is the commentary on that, with the fall happening. Good principle, good system, but what does it look like with sinful people operating outside of the garden? The same way 1 Corinthians 7 is a commentary on marriage and singleness and divorce. Paul says, God created government as His own minister with two roles, to punish evil and to promote righteousness. And in fact, God established the authorities to help manage the fall. It's His grace to all people. Believers and unbelievers, it's part of common grace. Because of the sin nature that's in every heart, God put authorities and restraints in order to manage the, the fall. Romans 13 that we, we read, every person is to be. And they're established by God. What are these authorities supposed to do? Verse 4, they're, they're a minister of God for your good. And an avenger who brings wrath on one who practices evil. There's the good, there's the evil. Systems of human authorities are to encourage good and to punish evil. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what they were designed by, by God to do. I mean, We said last week, you don't need Romans 13 if there's no fall. It doesn't need to bear the sword if there's no sin in man's heart to wrong another. I mean, Cain doesn't need protection if, if he didn't murder to begin with, and there's not sinful retaliation possible. Romans 13 is the New Testament counterpart to Solomon's statement here, and it clearly tells us the purpose that God had for government. The main, the must do is to punish evildoers. That's the big ticket item for government. Government Protect people from evil and harm, foreign or domestic, which is why you, you hear that even in some of our founding documents. And the second is to promote good. And if you summarize what Paul says in Romans 13, God created government, we're to follow authority in general because it represents God Himself. You take away all authority, that's bad, that's anarchy. And justice and righteousness are at the center of God's purpose for, for government. Whatever form, democracy, republic, monarchy, if it doesn't promote righteousness and provide justice, it's not doing what God created it to do. And that's frustrating, isn't it? You ever thought about why we get so incensed over political corruption? Should we? Yeah, you should. You absolutely should. You, you should because of the character of God. I mean, the point of Romans 13 isn't just submit no matter what. The, the point is the purpose that, 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 that God created them for. I mean, if government officials are supposed to be acting in the place of God in a certain sense, 
they're His representatives, His ministers, and there's nothing worse than an unjust God. So, so when those two things collide, you, you do get, get upset, and you should. It's like we instinctively know better when we see it in politics or somebody in authority. I mean, it's like the person is supposed to be acting as a servant of God, as a minister of God on God's behalf, and, and they're acting the opposite. And we can tell. We don't like it. It's the same feeling that, that you should get and you do get when you encounter a corrupt priest or, a, you know, or a, a crooked religious figure. I mean, they're supposed to be God's representatives and, and they're acting like Satan's agents. Government leaders are supposed to recover the character of God through the operation of their duties. That's their main role. But they don't. Now, the question that everyone wants to know right now is if they don't do that, do we have to obey them? And the short answer is no, but it's not a blanket no. And Solomon says before we get there, we need to listen to his wisdom and understand why they do what they do and, and apply it. And it's no mistake that Solomon calls us to wisdom when we observe these things happening. When we see a denial of justice, an omission of righteousness... And when that happens, it's, it's an abuse of authority. It's abusing the authority that God entrusted them to. And Solomon says because of the fall and the sinfulness of man, those principles are trashed on a regular basis. Outside of the garden, evildoers are not punished, and good and righteous things are not promoted. In fact, it can be the opposite. Good people are punished, and evildoers are promoted. And he says that will happen in a cursed world. But he also tells us the, the cause. Ooh, that was turbocharged there, wasn't it? The source of political corruption. Look, if you would, at the verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor and the denial of justice, or when you see, he says, do not be shocked at the sight. Now he's going to give us the reason. The source. Where does political corruption come from? For one official watches over another official, and there, is, there are higher officials over them. Solomon now gives the reason there's corruption in the, the good system that God created. Simply, it has sinners in the place of power. And Solomon describes a never-ending cycle of bureaucracy here that only increases corruption. And you hear the circular pattern, one watches over another who watches over another who watches over another. There's also a hierarchy. The lower officials who are watching over the higher officials, the, the little fish gets eaten by a bigger fish, and that one gets eaten by an even bigger fish, and so on. And the phrase to watch one another can have a positive or negative idea in the, in the Hebrew. In both cases, it, it proves Solomon's point. Gives the source. If it's this watching over is positive, like like it means like they watch out for each other, like cronyism. The one above watches out for the one below. It's like the judge who watches out for the prosecutor because they're both on the same side, or it's like the the politician who controls the ethics committee investigates one of their own and then declares them innocent and gives them a commendation in the congregation uh, congressional record. Sometimes you don't even have to be on the same team. They, they do it for one another. 
And if you're outside of that circle, you're out of luck. If it's positive, it's like cronyism. If it's negative, it means to keep under a watchful eye. Like Phil Reichen said, like surveillance. Solomon says the layers of bureaucracy created to keep everyone in line so everyone can watch each other can actually end up hurting the very people that they're, they're supposed to, to serve. You ever heard the term Washington gridlock? That's what Solomon's talking about here. Have you not felt the frustration every time you go to the grocery store to buy cold medicine and you have to give them your driver's license and blood type and underwear size just because people cook meth and all you want is some Sudafed for a stuffy nose? What, what about when you go through security at the airport and it changes from month to month and there's new layers of reaction to a new threat? I mean, you gladly submit to all of those things if it really helped catch the bad guys. But, but you know that many of those rules have been made by a career politician in Washington whose donors are, the, are, the, are part of the company that, that makes the x-ray machine or the ID scanner. It's frustrating, isn't it? That's what Solomon's talking about here. Those kinds of layers end up denying justice for the, for the person that actually needs it. Solomon considers the frustrations of oppressive bureaucracy with endless delays and excuses while the poor cannot afford to, to wait. I mean, can a person living paycheck to paycheck afford to wait two years for a bureaucrat to keep the bank from foreclosing on their house? Solomon says accountability doesn't stop corruption. I mean, that's one of the principles that you can take from this. We just need more accountability. Solomon says that doesn't stop corruption. It actually can increase corruption. There are four layers of official accountability in the second half of verse 8. And people can get around any barrier that they, they desire. In fact, it can even breed more injustice. Tremper Longman says the circle of watching over each other means that everyone is preoccupied with watching each other, and so no one is watching out for justice. That's the idea here. Man is sinful, and that's why there are bad politics. And Solomon says that's the real issue. You can change the form of government or politicians, but men are still sinners, and there is nothing external that will, will change that. Don't even think having the Bible at the center of everything will somehow produce a godliness or, or rid us of political corruption. You just look at Israel and figure that out. It's a theocracy. It's sure better than the alternative. But sin still remains. And you say, I'm, I'm with you, I feel all that, but that sounds kind of hopeless. Where's the wisdom that Solomon's given here? Am I just... just just going to have to put up with, with bad politics my whole life? Well, in some ways you are. What should I do, though, as a simple believer? So small, I, I'm not even in the pond, much less a, a fish. Well, that's where Solomon ends. He actually gives us the solution to political corruption. Solomon says bad politics comes from the sinfulness of man... Bad leaders who are inept or poor and bureaucracy. So, so how do we deal with it? What's the wise solution that will reduce my frustration while dealing with, with the fall? And Solomon gives three solutions, actually, here. Gives you a perspective. Gives you a provisional answer. And then he points us to a permanent 
solution. But you think right, see right. He tells you what to do in the meantime, and then he tells you how you actually, how the whole problem will, will be solved. And he's already given us the first piece back in verse 8. We've already seen it. Solomon says in verse 8, if you see, don't be shocked, meaning when you see. That's Solomon's first piece of wisdom. Don't be surprised that corruption exists because it's a cursed world. And that right there will reduce a ton of frustration. Don't let it bring you to sin. Don't fret. Don't lose heart. Don't don't give up. Don't turn into them. And don't think somehow that you're going to eradicate the world of oppressions and corruption or fix politics. You won't. Whether it's the moral majority, the angry majority, the social justice movement, or whatever comes next, if you think you can, you're going to end up grumpy and frustrated and joyless. All of those things will ultimately fail because you cannot stem the tide of of sinners. Another one is just there to to take their place. Now before you accuse Solomon of fatalism, think about what he is saying here. If you're naive and you don't understand the real issue is in the heart, you think that you can change the world apart from Jesus Christ, in the end, you're going to fail and you're going to give up or you're going to take matters in your own hands. It's the only two options when, when you think that way. Hopelessness or wrath, which in the end doesn't work, and then you're back to hopelessness. You'll try and fail and end up cynical and fatalistic yourself. It's one of the reasons that there are thousands of Christians on the trash heap of, of, of apathy whenever it comes to politics. They, they didn't keep the fall in perspective. And when their political movement failed, they, they gave up and said, what's the use? And that's what you see all over the world. Hopelessness because there is no justice and human vengeance because there is no hope of justice. Solomon offers more than a perspective here, though. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Here's the provisional solution. He says, don't be shocked. It's going to happen no matter which party is in control, even if you have the Bible in the middle of it. He says, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. There's a system God has created. There are corrupt people operating the system. But there is a provisional solution here. What should you do? Well, Solomon says once you understand you live in a crooked world and you're never going to straighten it, there's a temporary answer and there's a permanent solution. If you get two of those mixed up, mixed up, you're going to be frustrated again. But if you fail to to uh, pursue this, this provisional, this temporary solution, you'll be frustrated as well. And he says the provisional solution is to promote good politics. You say, now wait a minute. Politics bring frustration, and he says promote good politics? Yeah, that's exactly what he says. Solomon says there's a curse, and he says the source of bad politics is sinners that are in it, but he also says the system itself is not bad. God created it, remember? In fact, right here in verse 9, he says it can bring blessing if practiced rightly. Now this, again, this word in Hebrew, the king cultivates the the, the field, this can either have a a negative idea or a positive one. If negative, it it follows this circle of corruption, and now the king's part of it, you know. Uh, One official watches over another, and the... uh, 
and then there are higher officials who watch over them, and now the king gets involved, and, and he takes advantage of the land. And if you think that Solomon is depressed or this is a negative book, that's probably what, what you're going to assume. The idea of a dictator enriches himself of the people's labors, and surely that happens in a fallen world. But I've already shown you that that's not the case. This is a wisdom book. The other option is this is a positive statement, which is the way that the New American Standard and I think ESV puts it. That's the way that you should take it. Solomon is saying a king who cultivates the land or promotes prosperity is an advantage to have, even in a fallen world. That's the positive way. And while the source of bad politics is the sinners that govern the system, capable men who govern are a blessing to everybody. Solomon is giving wisdom to lessen the curse. Verse 8 describes the curse. Don't be shocked when you see the curse. What do we do in the midst of the curse? The curse won't be eradicated until uh, Revelation 21, but here's the wisdom in verse 9. Just like corrupt politicians are blasphemy, wise rulers are a blessing. That's why you're foolish to disregard politics altogether and become passive. And I understand the temptation, I do. Solomon says to a certain degree, you, you get what you vote for and, and, and you'll get what the world deserves if you don't vote at all. You say, I, st- I, vote, I did vote and I still got uh, bad. Well, remember verse 8. Solomon says, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't sit on your hands and say it's no use because this whole place is going to perish. Or the unbelievers are too many, so I'm just going to focus on the church. That will bring you a lot of frustration because if you don't try, uh, try to enact just laws, then, then the only people that will are the godless and the wicked. And politics is not their realm. God created them, remember? But don't forget that. Politics are activities associated with the governance of a country or an area. It's a process of decisions that applies to a group of people, and, and, and you are those people. I mean, God created the authorities, and He wants them used for His glory. I mean, and just like He wants marriage to be used for His glory, but you don't stop marrying because unbelievers abuse it. I mean, you don't stop having families because many are broken. So some Christians seem to... to to buy into the fallacy that they're secular and they're sacred and, and they say, well, that's the world and this is the church and I'm not going to worry about government. I mean, ask German Christians how that worked out or better the Jews that were under the German Christians. This will bring even more devastation if you fall for that lie. But don't be shocked by the corruption. And if you try all of that and it still fails, remember Ecclesiastes 3, which is why we started with that message. God's timing is perfect, and He will make all things beautiful in His time. God may have another purpose that you, don't, you, have, you know nothing about. He may be correcting people like He did Israel. He may be judging others. So we pray and vote and boldly call out corruption and resist, but, but don't overlook the fact that God could be working through wicked rulers. He could be giving people what, what they deserve. I mean... I mean, you understand that sometimes God, God's hand actually brings judgment, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, He brings direct judgment. And other times God brings judgment by taking His hand and moving others, like with Babylon, 
He moved Babylon to, to bring judgment on Israel. And sometimes God's judgment is He takes His hands off, like in Romans 1. He gives people what, what they want. But the worst judgment that God can bring has nothing to do with His hands. The worst judgment that God can bring is when He silences His voice. The worst judgment in the Bible is when there's no prophet in the land. Because without that, a sinner has no hope. I mean, I know that there are, that there are dark times. and You're just reminded that there are over 65 million abortions that have taken place. And we're quibbling over 300,000 deaths, which are horrible. We're saying nothing about 65 million that have been taking place. But you have a reason to rejoice even in the midst of all that. God has not brought our nation or our neighbors to that point of judgment yet where He's removed His voice. He may be taking His hand off, but He's not stopped His his mouth. And His voice has the power to raise the dead, does it not? To bring flesh to bones in, in you as the church or His voice. You tell people the truth. You speak His word. You call them to repent. You share the gospel. God's voice is your primary role as the, as the church. We live outside of the garden, but the church is in the world. It's not of the world. And the last judgment that God will bring on the earth is when He removes the church. And then His voice will be muted. But right now, the church is still here. So tell them where it's going to end up. Tell them social justice is unbiblical and why there are not multiple races. There are only one, regardless of your color of your skin. They may not listen, but tell them anyway. Solomon's point is don't think ultimate or permanent answer is found in government, because that will bring you frustration as well. And Solomon says, while there's a temporary solution, that temporary solution is good government, the permanent solution is the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's coming. And we've already been here, Ecclesiastes 12, the end of this book. He says, The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is evil or good. When will that happen? When Jesus shall reign. You see, the permanent solution to bad politics is not better politics. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and His coming kingdom. And while the law or government cannot change a single heart, Jesus Christ can. <laughs> because when He changes you, God doesn't write new laws and put them on paper or hang them on the walls of your home or in the halls of Congress. When God changes your heart, He writes His law on your heart. His system of authorities are good, but only Christ can make new hearts so that men and women can function the way that they're intended. And the work that the gospel can do is only a foretaste of what's coming which is where Solomon ends the book. There is coming a kingdom of righteousness where only virtue reigns. And that king will not only cultivate the land, that king will make a new land for us one day. 
And Isaiah tells us about this, this ruler. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful and Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in his kingdom there will be no need for bureaucracy or officials to watch over each other, because in his kingdom there will be no injustice. Isaiah 9, 7, the very next verse says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. But until that kingdom comes, Solomon says, Don't be shocked by corruption. Don't shrink your, from your duty to raise up wise kings. Do preach the gospel, even to the corrupt ones, because that's the only thing that will ultimately change their heart. Political corruption is frustrating. It's part of the curse. It'll never be eradicated. You're frustrated because these are God's representatives, and your response is to promote righteous leaders, understand unbelievers, and their worldviews are not equals, they're rebels. Don't neglect this realm, but don't hope in this realm. God's solution is better than revolution or resignation. Won't you bow your heads? We'll apply some of these things specifically in our Q&A and otherwise, but... You might be here this morning, and um, you're hearing me talk about a king, a coming kingdom, and you don't know him. This has nothing to do with religion or praying a prayer or, or responding to the end of a, of a sermon. It has to do with what you know in your heart. You know whether you have repented and believed, whether you've bowed the knee in your soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's your maker, he's your creator. You're the one that rebelled, just like me. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And You know that not only when you read Romans 13, but when you hear anything about God, there's something in your heart that chafes against that. There's a rebellion that rises up in there. That's the evidence of your sin nature. And God would have been absolutely just to leave you that way, but he, but he didn't. He came and paid the penalty that you deserved, death. And then he earned the righteousness that you need to get into heaven. That's why it's not about religion. You couldn't earn it if you wanted to, but Jesus did. God was satisfied with him. And he willingly offers you both forgiveness and salvation, full and free. If you'll turn from your rebellion and turn to him, He'll wash you of your sins. And it's all because of His grace. You say, how do, that, how do I do that? The Bible says repent and believe. Acknowledge that. Turn from yourself and turn to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Tell Him that. Ask Him to forgive you. And you will. And then begin living under His reign. Father, we love You and we praise You. We thank You for the, the gospel, which is the only hope that we have. We also thank you for a Bible that tells us the truth, doesn't cut any hard edges off. And 
life outside of the garden until you come is frustrating. But you have filled us with your grace and you have given us hope. Help us to work for these provisional solutions, but help us to always remember the permanent one is coming and exalt our King and be His voice. I ask it all in His name. Amen.